This morning, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. I want to continue our series this morning on spiritual maturity, addressing, once again, the subtle ways that we can rob ourselves of God's blessing and bring dishonor to Christ. We have already learned from past expositions that we can do this by professing Christ with our lips and not our life. We can do this by having no fear of God. And this morning, I would like to demonstrate that another way that we can banish ourselves to an island of spiritual immaturity is to love ourselves more than Christ. Before we look at this text, I want to prepare your hearts a bit. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that it is the unique responsibility of the pastor-teacher to help the saints grow up, to help you mature in Christ. And we do this through the ministry of preaching and teaching and sacrament. And we measure our maturity by how we manifest this whole notion of being new creatures in Christ. How we follow Christ's example of obedience, of humility, of love. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Frankly, most Christians have little understanding of what this means. Many Christians have been asked somewhere in their life to make a decision for Christ and to accept Jesus into their heart and make him Lord of their life. And then they can put the little bumper sticker on the back of their car that says, God is my co-pilot. But my friends, Jesus calls us to something far greater than merely making a decision. He calls us to deny ourselves and become his disciple. And frankly, we don't accept him into our heart. We plead with him that he will accept us into his eternal kingdom by his free grace. And we don't make him the Lord of our life. We submit to him who is already Lord. To him who is already the creator, the ruler, the redeemer, the sustainer, the consummator of all things, the judge of heaven and earth to whom has been given all authority. And he is certainly not our co-pilot. He alone is the pilot. The risen Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of the living and the dead. But, friends, these kinds of gospel distortions have done great damage to the church. Great damage to many believers. No wonder God has loved so little. No wonder in the minds of many Christians he is some kind of a benevolent buddy that hands out the goodies and helps us become successful and prosperous. Or for others, he's merely a personal trainer that that somehow lives in our heart and gives us inner tranquility and helps us to be all that we can be. Or, as one professor of theology over at Vanderbilt University put it, Quote, Jesus is a model of nonviolent resistance and the cross a symbol of dying to self, end quote. My friends, these are blasphemous distortions of who Jesus is. Michael Horton got it right when he said, quote, the early Christians were not fed to wild beasts or dipped in wax and set ablaze as lamps in Nero's garden because they thought Jesus was a helpful life coach or role model, but because they witnessed to him as the only Lord and Savior of the world. 
Jesus Christ doesn't just live in the private hearts of individuals as the source of inner peace. He is the creator, ruler, redeemer, and judge of all the earth. And now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. End quote. Beloved, your spiritual maturity will be directly linked to your understanding of who Jesus is. And the more you know him, the more you will love him. I want you to ask yourself this morning, do I really love Christ? Do I really take seriously his call for me to be his disciple? Does my life orbit around the gospel or am I the center of gravity? Is life all about me or him? Do I truly serve Christ or do I serve my own agenda? Now you might say, well, well how, how, how do I really know? Well, Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. That's not that hard to understand. By the way, those commandments encompasses all of Scripture, the full scope of the Father's will revealed in his word. It's a very long list. Let me give you one example. He gives us this great commission in Matthew 28. He tells us to go and make disciples, to teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. Do you do that? How many Christians are serious about going? Just telling other people about the gospel. What about making disciples? Are any of you discipling other people? Not many people do, unfortunately. What about teaching others all that Jesus has commanded? You see, when those types of things are seen as something that the pastor and other people do, that really betrays, on one hand, some ignorance, but certainly betrays a lack of love for Christ. We're told to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Do you do that? Are you serious about that? There are so many commandments. We're told to not forsake the assembling together of the saints. And some Christians will find every excuse imaginable to forsake the assembling together of the saints. And on and on it goes. Dear friend, if your heart's desire is to do the will of God, then you will seek to obey his commandments. Luke 6.46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, obedience is always what validates genuine saving faith. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So indeed, the remnant of the old man makes it really hard for us to be brutally honest with ourselves. Our hearts are deceitful. We're hopelessly biased in our own favor. We are great at overestimating our love for Christ and underestimating our love for self. Well, today I want to examine... The life of Peter, an apostle of Christ who greatly overestimated his love and devotion to Christ. I see myself in him so often. You will see yourselves as well. He was the one that vowed at Jesus' betrayal in Matthew 26. Though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He went on to say, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And yet, as Jesus predicted, he denied his Savior and Lord three times before the night was over. Dear Christian, one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity will be our willingness to always be suspect of it. And the more we see our weakness in the light of his love and his grace, the more humbly dependent we will become and the more we will fall in love with the lover of our souls. So we come to John 21. Let me give you the background here. This is the epilogue of of the Gospel of John. And 
today I want to examine it in, in, a, in a more general nature than I would normally do by digging into every verse. I want you to see the big picture because I want you to see the danger of loving self more than Christ. The context here is Jesus has already sacrificed himself on the cross. He has risen from the grave and he has appeared to the disciples in the upper room where he found them confused and frightened, hid behind a locked door. They were weak in faith. They were prone to self-love and self-protection. They were cowering in fear and then suddenly Jesus in his glorified body just walks right through the door, stands in their midst and says, peace to you. And then he shows them his side and his hands and he lovingly rebukes them for their hardness of heart and their disbelief. So here in John 21, the first 14 verses, John deals with an unresolved question that is in the mind of the disciples at the end of chapter 20. And that question was this, what's going to happen to us now, now that Jesus is gone? Will he still provide? Will he still protect? Can he still be trusted? Then in verses 15 and following, we will see Jesus' love and his grace in action as he restores Peter. And here, we will learn that loving Christ above all else means that we will be willing to sacrifice everything to follow him. I believe the the Spirit of God would have me address four dominant themes that emerge from this chapter. First, we will see the subtlety of faltering faith. Second, the marvel of pursuing grace. Third, the sorrow of deficient love. And finally, the joy of willing sacrifice. So I want you to join me this, this morning by subjecting your, your heart to the penetrating light of divine truth so that the Spirit of God will, will, will stir your heart and show you your weakness, your failure in love as He has me all this week that we together might repent and follow Christ, come what may. First of all, the subtlety of faltering faith. Now, earlier Jesus has commanded the disciples to leave Jerusalem, where they were afraid of being captured by the authorities and maybe succumbing to the same fate of Jesus. So Jesus has told them, I want you to leave, I want you to go north, back up into the Galilee, to a certain designated mountain, And there I will meet you. So here in the first three verses of chapter 21, we see that seven out of the 11 disciples did this. Perhaps the others came in another group later on. We don't know. But this would have been a much safer place for them and the place where Jesus was going to meet with them. So notice verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. The key phrase here is, I am going fishing. Now, many commentators will argue that this phrase means nothing more than they went fishing. Catch some fish, have something to eat. But with a closer look, I frankly would humbly disagree. I believe it means that they returned to their former livelihood of fishers of men, or fishers of fish rather than fishers of men. Remember now, God has called them to the gospel ministry, but now all of that is in question. Here's why I believe this. First of all, we know their faith was faltering. They were afraid. They questioned whether or not Jesus was going to still provide and protect and empower them. You see, the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. So rather than wait for Jesus on the mountain, they take matters into their own hands. 
And like all of us tend to do, they resorted to an area of perceived confidence and safety. They took the easy way, the safe way. They resorted to their comfort zone. A zone, frankly, where soldiers become cowards and servants become sluggards. But also notice in verse 3, in the middle, he says, they went out and got into the boat. There's the definite article there in the original language, meaning there's a specific boat. No doubt this was the one that belonged to Peter. Now, having been to Israel and spent some time, I've spent some time studying this, I have come to the conclusion that the boat that they're referring to here would have been the typical boat that the fishermen of those days would have used. A boat, frankly, that would have required significant preparation to go fishing. These vessels were typically about 27 feet long and about seven and a half feet wide. They would accommodate between five and seven crewmen and up to 15 passengers. And many times they will have a smaller boat attached to them. And I am going to argue that there are two boats in this scene, as you will see. Now, they've been away for about three years. And if you know anything about wooden fishing vessels, you know that they have to be dry docked or they will rot. They will be destroyed. So I'm sure that this boat was somehow dry docked. They have to be cleaned. They have to be treated. All of their nets and sails and all of their riggings would have rotted by now. They would have had to have done something to get new ones. So it would have been a significant undertaking to prepare the vessel, to make arrangements even for the cleaning and the sale of the fish. So this is not a casual, well, let's grab a pole, go down to the beach here and wet a line, or back the boat into the water and kind of go out and do a little fishing here today. It would have been a major task to get everything prepared, not something that you would do if you're merely going to go out and catch a few fish and eat them and then go back up to the mountain to meet Jesus. Moreover, Jesus predicted earlier in chapter 16 and verse 32 that they were going to be scattered and that they would return to their own home. Notice in that text, he says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home. Now, the word home has been added by the translators, but it is literally in the original language, each to his own. And this would cover everything pertaining to a person's life, his home, his property, his livelihood, his business. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11, the same Greek phrase is translated, quote, your own business or your own affairs in the ESV. Furthermore, the omniscient Jesus knew their faith was faltering. The icy grip of fear had a hold of them. And it's interesting how later, when Jesus questions Peter in verse 15, he addresses him by using his former name because he's acting like his former self. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these and I think that these is best understood as a reference to all of the fishing supplies necessary to operate the fishing enterprise. Their boats, their ropes, the nets, the fish baskets, etc. Now before I go on, dear friends, I want you to ask yourself a question right now. Do I love Christ more than anything else in my life? Or do you have a faltering faith that you may not even see, a deficient faith? that would even cause you to deny Christ in subtle ways and resort to areas of perceived competency and safety in your life? Well, if so, such a path will lead you to regret. You will rob yourself of the amazing adventure of serving Christ and all of the joys that go with that. Not to mention you will rob Him of the glory and the honor that He deserves. Before we go on, one of the things that we see here is that the Lord expects us to be committed. That's what he expected with Peter. To walk by faith, not by sight, to trust in him. Moreover, the Lord expects us to be available to do his bidding. 
The disciples weren't willing to do that at this point. Most Christians are never used because they never make themselves available. There's more pressing priorities. And thirdly, we've got to learn to be patient, to wait upon the Lord, trust in his timetable. Peter's about to learn these things the hard way. Notice verse 3. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. (laughs) The Lord is so gracious, isn't he? He is so gracious. Remember something, folks. He only blesses his work, not ours, not the things we do in the flesh. And when he tells you to do something and you ignore him, you know what? You are on your own. You are on your own. So here, I'm sure the disciples are, are discouraged. And I believe their consciences were, were animated with feelings of shame and guilt, thinking, oh no, what have we done? God is not blessing this. And here the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth is going to confront them with their inabilities and dramatically expose their faltering faith. It's as if Jesus is saying, do you really think that I am unable to meet your needs? Do you, do you really think that you can take matters into your own hands? I am about to remind you who is the almighty, sovereign creator and who's not. Now, before we go on, you must understand something of the fishing methods of those days and, frankly, the methods they use today because this is important to my argument. They used what was called a trammel net, T-R-A-M-M-E-L, and these were, this was really, I should say, three nets in one. One would, uh, would, would go to, to the bottom. I should say the whole thing would go to the bottom at some level and from the top to the bottom and form basically a barrel. And there would be two outside nets which have a large opening for the fish to swim into. But in between them, there would be a finer net that the fish would many times get trapped in and tangled in. And, by the way, these nets would require a great deal of cleaning and drying and mending. Sometimes you you read about the disciples mending their nets. After each use, they would have to do this. But then they also used, beyond that barrel net, they also used another net called a veranda net. And this was more of a casting net that would be thrown over the top of the barrel of that trammel net, and it would gradually sink down to the bottom. And what they would normally do is have another smaller boat that would go out to throw that net over the trammel net. So once the casting net would sink to the bottom, the fishermen would then dive down into the water to retrieve the fish. They would either put them in a basket or they would take the rope of that casting net and they would they would tighten it kind of like a parachute that would gradually be weighted and go down. They would take the rope and they would tie it to um, to the other boat and haul in their fish. This is why Peter was dressed in a loin cloth, we believe. And this, I believe, was the method that they used. This is a method that they still use in the Sea of Galilee today. Now notice verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach... Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, do you not have any fish? Do you? You do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. I think that's probably how they, how they said it, don't you? No. I know what it's like to be out in a boat fishing all day. And some guy pulls up next to you, have you caught anything? No. That's the attitude. Verse 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Now, you must understand, the big trammel net, the big barrel net, the barrel trap had already been set on the left side of the main boat. 
and is attached to the boat. And then the smaller boat would go around and throw the veranda net over the top as the larger boat would drift along. But here Jesus is saying, don't throw your casting net over the top of that barrel, of that trammel net. Throw it out in the open sea on the other side of the boat. Now, I have to laugh. By now we have seven very fatigued, frustrated fishermen in a boat. They've fished all night. They've caught nothing. Moreover, these are experienced fishermen. It'd be one thing if they were novices, but these guys knew what they were doing. By this time, they had no sense of humor. I would say they were downright grumpy, even churlish. Who is this guy telling us how to fish? But friends, isn't it at times like these when our precious Savior shows up? When things aren't working, we've blown it. We've gone off in the wrong direction. We know it. We're frustrated. And all of a sudden, we hear the voice of our Savior. We move from the subtlety of faltering faith, secondly, to the marvel of pursuing grace. Notice verse 6 again. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. I believe here the smaller boat cast that veranda net, that casting net, over on the other side. They catch all this, all these fish. Verse 7, that disciple therefore whom Jesus loved, referring to John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I think he was the one in the larger boat because he would have been the one to dive down periodically to see if they'd caught anything and to retrieve the casting net and there was never anything there. And now the smaller boat has caught the fish. Peter dives in after he puts a respectful garb on knowing that he was about to come into the presence of of the Lord of hosts, and he swims to meet Jesus. Isn't it amazing, even with all of his faults, he had a desperate desire to be in relationship with Jesus. Folks, is that true of you? I hope it is. He longed to be worshipful. He longed to submit to the Lord. He longed to obey the Lord, but he struggled with it, just like we all do. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat. I believe this was the one used for the throwing, the casting net. They came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. What a dramatic display of sovereign power over creation. It's as if Jesus is saying, you really thought I couldn't provide? You really thought that? Verse 9, and so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. You know, when I I read this passage, I, I found myself being struck with what and what I think Peter was saying, what he was thinking. Do you realize the last time he was in the proximity of Christ and a fire? Do you remember what happened? He denied the Lord three times. And here he is in the presence of the Lord, and he's about to be asked if he loves the Lord three times. I want you to notice what happened in verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you now caught. He's now going to add to to the things that he spoke into existence. I'm sure when it came time for Jesus to make breakfast, he just said breakfast, and there it is. 
But now he's saying, bring some of your fish over here. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. This is an amazing thing. See, Peter was already already wet. The others weren't. He was the one diving in to get the net all the time. So he says, hey, I'll, I'll go get the fish. Peter, Peter, by the way, must have been a pretty stout fellow. The fish that they caught were probably were probably called musht, M-U-S-H-T. Uh, musht in Arabic means comb, and it really describes the dorsal fin of these fish. They were about 16 inches long, averaged about two pounds apiece. Um, sometimes they're called St. Peter's fish. I've had them over there. Uh, or Galilea tilapia. So that's probably what the fish were. So you do the math, you've probably got 300 pounds worth of fish and a net, pretty heavy. Of course, things lighten up in the water, but he's probably pulling it out of the water up to the shore. Then the other guys, I'm sure, come along and help him out. So they get the rest of the fish, and I love this. They, they, they count them. Now, every fisherman knows that this is a ceremony that we all look forward to. You get to count your fish. And then I love this in verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Oh, child of God, what, what a picture of sanctifying love that, that never leaves us, that, that never forsakes us. This, this is the marvel of pursuing love. Jesus is always seeking to restore us, to have fellowship with us, to have sweet communion with us. How many times we mess up in our lives and, and all of a sudden we turn around and there he is. That's what's happened here. Come over here, guys. You, you, you must be hungry. Have some breakfast. You know, I don't believe they had any appetite at this point. I believe they were so consumed with guilt and shame and at some level awe standing before the Son of God who has been resurrected from the dead, would you have an appetite? I don't think so. I would imagine what they're saying at this point is, how could I have ever doubted the Lord? What was wrong with me? After all that we've seen Him do, and now here He is, risen from the dead. But what does Jesus do? Although he's about to ascend back into heaven, he proves to them that he's going to continue to provide. He's going to keep pursuing his own with life-sustaining grace. By the way, he promised to do this in a mind-boggling way. Back in chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, he promised that, quote, the Father would give them another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Folks, let that sink in just for a second. Isn't it just like the Lord to make breakfast for us when we least deserve it? Maybe these truths today are his way of making breakfast for you as he desires to summon you back into fellowship with him. Isn't it just like the Lord to prove himself powerful on our behalf, especially when our faith is faltering and our love has grown cold? Aren't you glad the Lord calls feeble, sinful folks to be his disciples. These old clay pots in which he puts the treasure of the gospel. (laughs) But what else can he do? Because that describes us all, right? That's what he does. Why does he use us that the surpassing greatness of the power of God may be known? It's not from ourselves, it's from him. 
And isn't it just like the Lord to meet our every need? And as you think about it, He doesn't just barely meet our need. He, he just, it's just overwhelming. It's just overwhelming what He does. Why does He do this? Because He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Philippians 4.19, we read that my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And here we see a vivid example of Jesus' promise made earlier in John 14, beginning in verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Folks, remember this the next time you are defeated and beleaguered, discouraged over your own failures, and you're tempted to take matters in your own hands. Love Christ, not yourself. Trust in Him, not yourself. So again, verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples, it says, ventured to question Him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. It's amazing, isn't it? The one violated not only provides, but think about it, he serves. Isn't that amazing? Reminds me of the words of the hymn that we sang earlier this morning. O love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And against the backdrop of faltering faith and pursuing grace, we now see the sorrow of deficient love. What we're going to see now is Jesus is going to help Peter examine his heart, something that we should all do on a regular basis. And the probing question is going to be, do you love me? He doesn't ask him, do you fear me or do you believe in me or do you have faith in me? Do you worship me? Because, friends, all of those things are the roots that support the limbs of love that bear the fruits of humble service. If we look at a tree and the limbs are dying, we know that there's something wrong with the root. And your love for Christ is always going to be the surest way of determining whether or not you are really alive in Him. Where there is little love, there will be little faith, there will be little hope, little power, little perseverance, little sacrifice and service, little singing in the midst of sorrow. Jesus knew all of this. You might want to ask yourself, do I really love Christ? And if so, how could I prove that? Think about it. What are the types of things that you do with somebody somebody that you love? What happens? Well, they occupy your mind. You, You long to be in fellowship with them. You long to talk with them. You long to hear their voice, right? You would never wound them. You find your great joy and satisfaction in them. So you want to ask, do I love Christ? We tend to be madly in love with ourselves. That's why Jesus said in the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Please understand, Jesus here now is going to be jealous for Peter's love. And think about it, he is jealous for all of us, for all of our love. And for this reason, we should welcome this question. You know, he never asked this of those who are not his bride. Only his own. And frankly, none of us love him as we should. None of us do. But we can be certain of this. He loves us perfectly. And this we can trust. But we stand in need of his grace every moment, don't we? Every single moment. Even when we come to Christ as Peter did, admitting our love is deficient, we can be certain that The Lord already knows it. 
<laughs> and he still loves us. Now, there's a word play going on here. Some don't think there is. I happen to do, believe that, it, that there is, as we're going to see. Though they spoke in Aramaic, we see the Holy Spirit using the term agapao to describe the Lord's meaning. When the Lord uses the word love, he uses that word, which refers to the supreme kind of love, the highest form of sacrificial love that requires total commitment. But then Peter responds with phileo, a different verb denoting a lesser form of affection and devotion. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, again, he reverts to calling him, uh, you know, the, the pebble rather than the rock here. Do you love me, Agapas? Do you have that supreme commitment, that self-sacrificial love for me? Do you have that more than these? And I believe he was pointing to all of the fishing paraphernalia necessary for them to pursue the life that they loved, where they felt safe. Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, using the word philo. In other words, yes, I love you, but I don't love you with that supreme kind of love. I know that because I know that you know that. But look what Jesus said, tend my lambs. I think that's another way of saying don't go back to fishing. Don't revert back to those areas where you perceive yourself to be competent and safe. I want you to follow me. Go, don't, don't go back to fishing. I want you to tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agapas me? He said to me, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I philo you. I have affection for you, but I don't have that supreme kind of love. But Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Literally devote yourself exclusively to pastoral oversight. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, and here he uses the same verb that Peter uses, do you phileo me? Do you even love me with a less noble, less devoted affection? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? Again, the, 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 the same word for Love that denotes a lesser form of affection and devotion. My friends, this is the sorrow of deficient love. So what do we do? What we do is we humble ourselves before an omniscient Savior that can see into our heart one who knows our weakness and we praise Him for His steadfast love for us. That's what Peter says here. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, using Philo. Uh, you know that I have an affection for you, but I can't claim the loftiest, most supreme form of sacrificial love. But Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. It's as if he's saying, I know that, Peter, but I want you to serve me anyway. And as you serve me, this is how you will demonstrate even your deficient love for me. And this is how your love will grow over time. See, again, Jesus knew all things. He knew Peter's faltering faith. He knew his, knew his love for self. He knew his arrogance, his conceit, his commitment to self-protection, his impetuosity. He knew all of his weaknesses, and yet he fully affirms him into pastoral ministry. He forgives him. Friends, bear in mind that the Lord longs for fellowship with you, but we must first be grieved over our faltering faith and deficient love, our love for self, before we can be restored. And why does God do this? He does it because He loves to do so. Because it is His nature to be a merciful Savior. God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Even as Peter denied Christ three times, Jesus now presses for a confession of his love three times. And wherever there is sorrow over sin, there will be joy and restoration and renewed zeal and service. And Peter's sorrow over his deficient love and faulty faith was exactly what Jesus required for that full restoration and blessing. And he then becomes submissive and obedient and confident in Christ. In fact, later on, he proved his shepherd's heart. He says in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Literally take up the task of shepherding. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Boy, Peter really got it, didn't he? He really got it as the Spirit of God came upon him later. He says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, he, he went on to say, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Don't you know he remembered the Lord clothing himself with the robes of a servant to stoop down and wash his feet in the upper room along with the rest of the disciples? Don't you know he has in mind there that scene on the beach with the breakfast and the Lord serving them breakfast? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. He went on to say, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. What a contrast between the brash, conceited fisherman and now the very careful and humble shepherd we finally see the joy of willing sacrifice. After pressing for Peter's love and restoring him as a shepherd, notice what Jesus says to him in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grew old, when you, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. This, of course, was a reference to crucifixion. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter did, as a demonstration of his love. Jesus' love gave him great confidence, because now for over 30 years following this scenario, he faithfully serves Christ fearlessly alongside his dear wife until eventually they were both crucified because of their love for Christ for the sake of the gospel. You will recall that he had to watch his wife being crucified first, reminding her to remember the Lord. And then he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified as the Lord. Friends, this is the joy of willing sacrifice. And how do you know he served with joy? Well, you learn a lot from a man when he's close to death, especially when he knows how he is going to die. Listen to what he said in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who were protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you what, folks? You greatly rejoice. I know I'm about to be crucified, but I'm not looking at that. He goes on, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, there it is again, greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is the joy of willing sacrifice. So I ask you in closing again this morning, The question I asked you earlier, do you really love Christ? Do you take seriously His command for you to be His disciple? Or are you cowering behind some door, afraid to take a stand for Christ, afraid that somehow He will not provide? If so, I would encourage you to do as Peter did, to acknowledge that to acknowledge the subtlety of your faltering faith, to marvel at the pursuing grace of the Lord who is always there, never leaving us, never forsaking us, and to sorrow over your deficient love so that you will be able to take pleasure in the joy of willing sacrifice. And then, like Peter, you will learn what it means to be committed and patient and available, and worshipful, and submissive, and obedient, and confident in Christ. But these are the marks of spiritual maturity. These are the key, the keys to spiritual blessing. This is what it means to love Christ more than yourself. And friend, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, may the Lord grant that you do so today. May He reveal Himself to you. May He soften that heart of stone with the understanding of His blood that paid your ransom so that you too will be saved and fall in love with Christ and serve Him because Christ delights in saving sinners to the praise of His glory. Aren't you thankful for that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these great truths. We love you in such a deficient way. We are so prone to loving ourselves. But we know that you know that. And we thank you that you keep pursuing us. Lord, it is our desire to love you more. So we commit ourselves to that end afresh this day. We pray all of these things. In the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.